0: Okay, so, uh, I don't know, if you, if you haven't been here a while, maybe you don't know, I have two children. My son is five, his name is Josiah, and my daughter uh, is two, her name is Abby, and uh, Abigail. And they are, and, and from what I understand, this doesn't stop, uh, but they are in the stage of life, and maybe it'll just be forever, of the, hey, that's not fair stage right like Josiah wants if Abby gets something he wants to have it right uh if if Josiah gets something Abby wants to have everything her brother gets right so much so that we have renamed chocolate in our house to broccoli right so that Abby won't want chocolate milk because we'll say hey Josiah would you like some broccoli milk and he's like yes and Abby's like I don't want broccoli milk okay so We're lying to our children, and it's awesome. Uh, (laughs) But even so, yesterday, we are at uh, my in-laws, Grammy and Pawpaws, right? And Josiah is like a spider monkey. He's just jumping from couch to recliner. And Abby, she's like, I want to jump too, right? And so she gets up in the little recliner thing, and her jump looks like this. (laughs) you know she just kind of falls forward but she wants to do everything brother does and if she doesn't get to do it she gets angry right i don't know where she gets the anger from i think her mother Uh, uh but she gets angry she wants to do those things right and 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 this it's not fair mentality it's not exclusive to children we know this right and it's interwoven in our culture even now with a lot of political issues we want equality in all things some of these good some of these things are good some of these things maybe not wherever you stand on that doesn't matter my point is we have this working in us from birth to to throughout our culture throughout our days of if I don't get something that someone else gets it's not fair and that's no different spiritually. We come to God with a lot of these cultural things of, hey, I should be getting that. That's not fair. This should be happening in my life. That's not fair. And we've been preaching through Romans. If you've got your Bibles, we're continuing through Romans 9. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. This chapter is very uh, dense and, and, and thick and and uh, not one that any church planner would say, hey, you really want to grow your church? Preach Romans 9, right? That doesn't happen, right? Uh, but God is faithful. And, but he, here's the thing. So uh, this Romans 9 passage can invoke in us and make many scream, hey, that's not fair. It's not fair, God, that you would do that, that you would be that way. And, and Romans 9 theme is election. And uh, not the presidential election, right? If you're new to church, I, I couldn't even attempt to make sense of what's going on there. Uh, but the election of God's uh, salvation. So God being sovereign in salvation, Him electing some to be saved. And uh, I think it's important to note that the Southern Baptist Convention, the, the, their root, the roots of Baptist doctrine in this country, is founded uh, on this doctrine of election. Uh, if you go to the early churches, you, you, you have what, what began in our church as particular Baptists. They believed in a God saved a particular people. You have uh, throughout, uh, throughout all the Baptist confessionals, which a, a confession uh, was a, a just basically um, a, 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 a pamphlet or a written document that said, this is what we believe, right? So all those Baptist confessions in the early days... Uh, priest's election. It, it's in the uh, Philadelphia Confession of 1742. Uh, it's in the New Hampshire uh, Baptist Confession of 1833. It's in the Abstract Principles of the Southern Baptist Convention that was founded in 1858. Uh, it, it's, it's what we are founded on. Now, if you're like, I didn't know any of that. Don't worry. I didn't either. I had to look it up, okay? Uh, but those are the things that the Baptist Church, in particular, uh, is founded on. Now, the Baptist Church has kind of Uh, And and a lot of churches have swayed from that because we've watered down doctrine in the name of of evangelism, and we've kind of gone away from teaching real scripture. Uh, But I believe God wants us to go hand-in-hand, doctrine and evangelism go together. Doctrine fuels evangelism, right? Doctrine fuels that evangelism. And so it's what the Baptist church has been founded on. matter of fact, in, in the abstract principles, the thing that Southern Baptist Convention is founded on, it says this about election, it, that election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto, etern, uh, unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but of His mere mercy in Christ, in consequence of which choice they are called, justified, and glorified. So we're dealing with that this morning, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, and, and specifically, I think, we don't have a problem with God being sovereign over creation right? We believe God created everything out of nothing. Now, we also believe we can't do that, right? We kind of gather materials that he has already created and make something, but we, we can't out of nothing create something God can. That's what he does. So we have really no problem thinking, okay, God is sovereign over creation and, and the things that it, he is in control, total control over creation, right? Uh, and we have no problem with God being sovereign over life. This is why we ask God, God, give me that job. God, heal this person. Uh, God, uh, help me find a spouse. Right? We have no problem in God being sovereign over the things of life, um, and, and, and we can rest in that. We're okay with that. But where uh, we begin to struggle uh, is we want God to be sovereign over all things, over everything. We want Him to be in control and able to fix everything except for salvation. We want God's hands in everything except for who is saved, who becomes a believer. And that's where we pump the brakes on God's sovereignty. And I think for two main reasons. Uh, The first reason I think we hesitate at God being sovereign over salvation is that we really want something to do with our salvation. We, we attest that God has to play his part for us to be saved. The Holy Spirit has to convict or has to move or has to change or has to do some things. But we want to have some kind of play in it. We want to have some kind of part in it. And like our bottom line last week was all God, all grace. And we like how that sounds. It's really pretty. But when we start actually fleshing out what that means, we begin to have issue uh, with it. And and we know we can't be saved without God doing his part, but we really want to do our part too. So that's the first hang up. The second hang up I think we have is that, and and the reason we don't want to say God is sovereign over salvation is because because, uh, we want to protect God. When we start talking about God choosing some to be saved and and not choosing others, we begin to, uh, to think that God is not fair that he is not fair. He's not a fair God. And so in order to protect God, uh, we begin to come up with all these different ideologies uh, that are just not biblical. Now, uh, uh, we've seen Paul's MO throughout Romans is to present a truth and then to answer it, right? We, we said uh, he knew that many would ask about God's purposes and salvation that, that he, he said, we taught last week, uh, he was answering the question, okay, has God's purpose in salvation failed because the Jews aren't becoming Christians, right? So here you have the people of God, the ethnic people of God. Jesus has come to them to, to show them the way to be saved and they are rejecting Him uh, outright. And, it, and, and most, most of them, not just rejecting, but persecuting those who would believe upon Jesus. That's what Paul, the writer of Romans, did, right? He was Killing and persecuting Christians before God saved him and and so he asked that question and, and then and then he wants them to know that they can have that their salvation is secure. It's why he said that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right? And so in what we taught last week, verses six through thirteen of chapter nine, Paul said that the word of God hasn't failed because his promise isn't generic in that it's not just to the descendants of Abraham, but that it's specifically and covenantially to those whom God has chosen. And and he gives three generational examples of this. Remember. He said, "Abraham. Abraham was a uh, pagan Mesopotamian idol worshiper. He wasn't seeking God. God pulled him out of that uh, and, and brought him into and, and created uh, and, and made him the forefather of the Jewish nation." Okay. Uh, then he gives the example of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, God chose. Ishmael, God did not choose. Then he gives the. Uh, then Isaac had two sons. Jacob and Esau. Jacob, he chose before they were born. Esau, he did not, showing us that our salvation is not in what we choose or do. It's not even built upon our own effort or merit, but it's on God uh, uh, who saves. And so, uh, it's so our bottom line today. And I want us to get this: that it, it's just our bottom line is, Lord, have mercy. Now, I'm, I, I want to channel my inner Laverne and be like, Lord, have mercy. You know. Uh, I ain't gonna do that too much. I'm gonna try not to. I'm gonna try to temper that. Okay, we're in the borough now. All right, and uh, and so, Lord have mercy. But the premise of this is, okay, it is God's mercy is in, is is God's to give. It's God's to grant. It's God's to afford. And so, our prayer, our heart is, Lord have mercy. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on these people. Have mercy on our family. And and so in this, Paul knew. In in studying these principles about uh, God's salvation and election, he knew that the questions of God's fairness would come up. And so that's what he's going to deal with now. So if you look at verse 14, and that's where we'll start, chapter 9, verse 14, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So Paul said, Hey, I know what you're thinking. Isn't Jesus an equal opportunity Savior that will give everyone the same chance to be saved? Now, if Paul would have said, if Paul would have said, Okay, Jacob and Isaac were chosen by God because they were good or because they did the right thing, or because they followed God and they figured it out. And Esau and Ishmael was not chosen by God because they hated God and they rejected God and they turned away from Him and they didn't want any part of God. We would say, okay, that, that sounds, yeah, that's great. And, and, and given those truths, we would not, no one would send Paul nasty emails, right? That's not what he says here. He says, I've chosen Isaac and Jacob. Why? Because I'm free to do so. And he says, I have not chosen Ishmael or Esau. Why? Because I'm free to do so. And so in that, we begin to have this tension of, okay, uh, our immediate reaction is like, okay, is that fair? That's not fair. Is that right? That doesn't feel right. And it goes against all of our Upbringing. It goes against all of our cultural bent. It goes against everything in us in the flesh, honestly. And, and the fact that Paul knew election would cause people to, to question God's fairness proves, I believe, that Romans 9 is about individual election, not nationalistic election. Uh, let me read to you the next two verses, 15 and 16. It says, For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So, so Paul says, okay, before, this, this, is, this is great, this is great work on Paul's behalf, because he says, all right, before you hit sin on the email, you need to understand that election's not my idea, it's God's. And he says, it's been going on throughout all of Scripture. And he points them back to Exodus 33 uh, when he tells Moses that, uh, that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. While Moses was on the mountain, if you remember, Moses get, was getting the Ten Commandments from God. And while he's up on the mountain having this experience with God, he was up there, I believe, 40 days. he's up there having this experience with God. The people are down low clamoring asking Aaron to make them an idol, a golden calf idol, so that they can have some kind of image to worship. Okay, Moses realizes what's going on. He comes down. He, he straightens them out. He gets really ticked at them. And then he goes back up the mountain and says, God, they're morons. Don't kill them. Okay, please. And then, then he says this. He says, if you do kill them, then... then For their sake, blot my name out of your book. Now, he loved his people so much, he was willing to suffer the consequence of even hell for his people to be saved from God's wrath. Now, I know we're close and all, but I'm not sure I'm willing to pray that yet for some of you. Some of you, maybe. I'm just kidding. But here's Moses putting putting his eternal destiny on the line. For these people. He's, he's crying out to them. And then, and then Moses asks him something crazy. He says, God, show me your glory. Now, here's the thing. So, Moses has just walked through the ten plagues. You remember? God, God, God poured out ten plagues on Egypt. Then, he f- splits the Red Sea. Then, he is following and guiding his people with a uh, with a, a, a pillar of fire and, a, 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 and, and smoke and a cloud of smoke and so he's, he's guiding his people with his presence then they start getting thirsty and so out of a rock comes water they get hungry so God provides for them every morning they wake up and there is bread, manna manna just means what is this? right? manna on the ground every morning God feeds them and then Moses has the audacity to say, show me your glory. And you think, well, haven't you seen the glory of God? But, but then God says to him, he says, okay, I, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you see my the back side of me. My goodness is, I'm gonna hide you in the going but pass by you, and you can look once I pass by you. My all my goodness will pass by you and 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 essentially proclaim to you my name, who I am. And then and then he follows it up saying, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So in other words, what God is trying to get across to Moses is that God's glory is expressed in his name, and his name is expressed in his freedom to do whatever he wants to do. Uh, if, if you remember, okay, so, so God's name, God's glory, God's essence is in God being sovereign or God being free. Okay, if you remember Exodus 3. Exodus 3, uh, Moses is about to go to Egypt. He, uh, God is calling him out of the desert. And Moses asked him, okay, whom shall I say is sending me? And Moses says, I mean, and God says, I am who I am. Same sentence structure as I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, not an accident. Those things are overlaying one another to express that to be God is to be free, to do whatever God wants to do. To be God is is to not bend to the will of men. To be God is to be in sovereign, complete, and total control. In other words, God is saying, I, I am absolute. I am self-existent. I am am self-determining. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I am free to do whatever I want to do. Matter of fact, the Psalms say God sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's what it means to be God. There is no man that has God in a chokehold and said, You're gonna do this or or else. No, that is not the situation. God is sovereign and he is free and he he is in control. And to be God is to be in control. And so uh, the point here, Moses's point, or Paul's point here, is that God is not obliged to give mercy to anyone. Uh, Election isn't about justice or fairness, it's about mercy. It's about grace. Uh, It's it's not getting what we deserve. We talked about this last week, that that if we got what was fair, if we got what we deserved, we would all be damned. We would all go to hell. If I got what I deserved, if you got what what, what was fair for you, then we would all be damned. None of us would have any hope. And so rather than kicking against salvation being God's choice, we should be thankful. It should invoke a praise in us, a thanks in us. Because if, if, here's the deal. If salvation was completely up to us, our choice, right, then none of us would be saved. We've talked about our depravity. We came into this world selfish, de- sinners, spiritually dead, like my children, right? I've told you they fight. They, 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 where did they learn? Where did Abby learn to scratch out somebody's eyes when she gets angry? Because she's a little sinner. Right? This is in us from birth. We were naturally born dead, depraved sinners, right? We, we That's where we were. That's where we started. We were op- opposed to God. We were rebellious against God. We hated God until God did, did something for us. So if, if it was up to us, if it was our choice, right? If it was our choice to be saved or not to be saved, none of us would choose God that's consistent with the scripture Romans 3 says no one seeks for God no one loves God no one understands God in our own sin in our own depravity left that way we we would die that way none of us could wheel ourselves or figure out or be smart enough to get out of it we would all and, and rightly be punished for our sin if you remember In Romans 8, it said that the mindset on the flesh does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. So no matter how hard we seek after those things, which we wouldn't even seek after those things unless God gave us the grace to do that, we can't save ourselves. We can't decide to be saved. And if it were based on choice, then it would be a reward, not mercy. It would be a gift. It, it would cease to be a gift. Instead, it would be a reward. And, and so, praise God, it's not up to our fickleness and decision-making, right? And, and then, like, the other thing that could be claimed is, like, if salvation was up to us, our simple decision, then we begin to look at culturally culturally the world and say okay then it's not fair it's truly not fair because we have been afforded some rights and the opportunity to gather and hear the gospel to 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 believe upon the gospel and, and to know him and the truth of him maybe we were raised in a christian home we were afforded different privileges different rights different understandings of which a young man or young woman born in the middle east somewhere may never get the opportunity to hear the gospel how is that fair it's not. It wouldn't be. And on top of that, if it were up to us making decisions and not God, God's hand in salvation, then because that little girl, that little boy, they can't hear the gospel, then how do we sleep at night knowing that they're going to hell and it's our fault? Because it would be. It would be how fast can we make people understand and make decisions? But that's not how salvation works. And I love the sovereignty of God in that we hear testimonies of brothers and sisters coming to faith in Christ in the middle of Middle East. Why? Because we've gone with them and plead with them to make a decision for Christ? No. Because God sovereignly put in their mind a vision, a dream, and they go seeking the God that gave them a dream. God is even fulfilling His own great commission. he's sovereign he's in control of salvation last little argument here to to, to question God's fairness in election presupposes that we have rights and and that that those rights are being violated right but if you have no rights then if you you have no rights and you have no basis to claim that someone is is uh, taking advantage of your rights or treating you unfairly why Because we are all guilty. None of us have rights unto salvation. None of us. None of us have rights. None of us have a right unto salvation. Meaning, it's not not something we deserve. It's not something we earn. It's not something just because we exist that that we demand as a right. No, it's not. It is by grace and His mercy, God's to give. It's all grace and all God. And that's why in verse 16, um, Paul says it doesn't depend on human will or choice. It doesn't depend on exertion or effort. It's it's not about a good decision or a good life. It's about a good God. So it's it's all God. It's all grace. It's about mercy, not equity. That's what salvation is. And look, look, you think it might be exclusive to that. First of all, I would challenge you to read a couple other things John 6, John chapter 10, Ephesians 1. But here in John 1, verse 12 through 13, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Listen, so you can begin to stack up the consequences here. Okay, someone who saved, a believer, how were they born? How were they reborn? Who were born? Not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John here is saying the exact same thing Paul says. He says salvation isn't by natural birth. It, it, it's not by your uh, ethnicity or your, uh, who, who your descendants are. Uh, and it's not about your will or your human will or effort, but it's all God's to give. It, and it's all His grace if you remember John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus he says my Holy Spirit blows like the wind you don't know where it's going to go but you can see its effects and and so so his salvation is his to give it's his to grant and so when, when it comes to salvation we can't complain about uh... God's election being unfair because he chooses some and doesn't choose others because in reality It's not fair that he would choose any. We talked about that last week. The fact that he chooses any is is really an absolutely scandalous grace. Because none of us deserve it. None of us. And so the fact that he would choose any is, is a scandalous, merciful grace. So we can't say God's not fair. Now we can say God's too good. We can say God is too gracious or he is too generous to save a wretch like me. But to say God is not fair as we count fairness is just not biblical and not true. Because for him to save any is, is an absolute ridiculous grace, is an absolute scandalous grace and all of it, all of the election of God it's not about fairness. It's about mercy. Let me, let me wrap up this passage and uh, we'll kind of close. 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul doesn't say that God has mercy on those who would choose him and hardens those who hate him. That's not what he says. He says he has mercy on those whom he wills. He hardens those whom he will. In verse six, 15 and 16, Paul says, in regards to those God chooses, salvation isn't about fairness, it's about mercy. And in 17 and 18, in regards to those he doesn't choose, it's not about God's fairness, it's about God's purposes. God is God. And, and everything he does has a purpose. Everything he does. And Just because we don't know what that purpose is doesn't mean there's not one. It would be like this. Uh, us trying to figure out the purposes of God would be me sitting you in a movie theater and showing you a millisecond of a film and saying, all right, tell me the plot. Well, you can't. Right? I just saw like maybe your face is kind of blurry. I can't, can't really figure it out. That would be the same as us in our, what, what the Bible calls a vapor of a life, a mist of a life. Matter of fact, the Bible says that our lives are like dew on the grass. It's here in the morning and gone in the morning. doesn't even last a day. And us in these short 70, 80, 90, 100 years saying to God, okay, I figured you out. That's no, just crazy. We don't know the purposes of God. We don't know why he does certain things. We don't know why he saves certain people and not others. We don't know why he moves in our country and, and not in other countries. We don't know why he's doing that. But we trust. We trust because our God is sovereign. We trust because he is in control. We trust because he holds the whole world in his hands. And so we don't always know what his purposes are. We know his revealed will purposes, but his, his divine secret purposes, we don't know why he does certain things. Now, Pharaoh, God, it says, God raised up Pharaoh and passed by him to demonstrate the power of God. So the purpose of Pharaoh was to be raised up so that God would crush him. Why? So that all the nations would know the power of God. So Pharaoh's existence was evangelical. Now, I notice that none of you are sad about Pharaoh getting getting absolutely killed by God, right? I I know none of you are upset that Pharaoh... You're not like, that's not fair, Pharaoh. Pharaoh should have gotten a fair shot at it. No, you've all seen Prince of Egypt. You were cheering, right? When those waves came crashing down, you're like, yes! Moses, yes! Made it through, right? Right? So none of us are kicking back on Pharaoh getting what he deserved. And he did deserve it. He he hated God. He hated God's people. He worshiped false gods. He enslaved the people of God. He deserved the punishment and wrath to fall on him. But here's the thing, church. A lot of times we think that our pre-Christ existence lines more up with Moses than it does with Pharaoh. And that's not true. Given the state of our heart before Christ, we were just as hard, just as rebellious, just as God-hating as Pharaoh. And we deserve everything and more that Pharaoh got. So for God to look upon a room full of Pharaohs and say, grace, mercy out of his own free will, out of his own freedom, mine. It's grace. It's nothing more than the grace and the mercy of God. We all deserved to be in that sea as it comes crashing down. We all deserve that. But God isn't unjust in punishing Pharaoh. He deserved it. And he's not unjust in punishing sinners because we all deserve it. The scandalousness of it all is him to save any. Uh, R.C. Sproul is a great pastor, theologian, professor. Uh, he, he teaches a class in a seminary uh, and he was teaching this Old Testament class that had about 250 students. And in that class, they had three papers due. Throughout the whole semester, they had three papers. The first paper came, the due date came for that paper, and 25 students of the 250, 25 students were late on the paper. And so they begged with Dr. Sproul, hey, please forgive us, give us an extension, have grace and mercy. And so R.C., Dr. Sproul said, yeah, okay, I'll give you a two-day extension. Um, Then the second paper came due, and about 50 students were late on that one. And there was all kind of excuses. Oh, we stayed up late. We were, we, were, we were praying all night long, and we couldn't write our paper, right? All these different things. And, and RC, Dr. Sproul said, okay, all right, I'll give you a two-day extension. Well, the third paper came due, and 100 students were late. And they, they didn't give any good reason. They just said they just expected him to give a two-day extension because that's what he had always done. And that they had earned a two-day extension just by being in that class. And so paper due date comes and Dr. Sproul stands up there and and all these students are apathetic to his due date. And he says, all right. He begins calling out names. Johnny, F. Well, That student stands up and goes, whoa, that's not fair. Dr. Sproul says, you're right. It's not fair. Let me give you what is fair. Not only do you have an F on this paper, but you were late on the two previous ones. So I'm going to give you an F for both of those. That's what is fair. One of the things he noticed from this is that when grace is experienced for the first time, we're thankful. We We praise God. Yes, it's great. But oftentimes when we experience grace again, it moves to like this period of being jaded and bitter and oh, and then when we experience grace a third time it's no longer a gift to us but it's expected this is what many churches have done that they are imposing on god a requirement to give grace they are expecting God to give grace and he has to. And we got him in, 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 in an arm lock and, and we're not going to let him go until he gives his grace. You have to give grace, God. And God says, no, I don't. I give mercy on whom I want to give mercy. I give compassion on whom I want to give compassion. And so grace and mercy... It's not to be expected. It's a very undeserved, unmerited favor from God. So our question can't be, God, we expect you to give grace to everybody. Why not everybody? Our our question has to be, God, why me? Why did you pour out your mercy and grace on me? I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it and if you are damned on judgment day you won't be able to say to God God you're not fair because you'll be receiving just punishment for offense against a holy God and if you are saved on that day you won't be able to say God to, to God, you won't be able to boast in yourself you won't be able to say ah, I figured it out this is the great you know question of if you stand before God and God asks you why should I let you in to heaven what are you going to say? Well... It's funny you say that, God, because here's why I think uh, I was raised in a Christian home, and I, I, you know, I had great parents who taught me the Bible. So uh, really, like, they showed me some stuff, but kind of when I was seven, I figured it all out anyway. And so I figured it out how to be saved. And I, I did, now, now from VBS at seven to eighteen, I lived like hell. But don't worry about that. After that, once I had kids again, then I got back in church and got really serious about my relationship with you. And so uh, I figured it out, and I really I earned it and deserved it. And it was because of what I did. No, no one's going to say that. We are going to stand before the Father, and if he were to ask us this question, I'm not saying they will, but if he was to ask us why, you would say, I don't know. There is nothing in me that deserves or has earned or or, or qualifies for heaven or your presence. Nothing in me. But instead, I know that it is only your grace, only your mercy, only because of what Jesus did by going to the cross and taking my deserved wrath on himself. That's the only way I have any chance, is because of you and your mercy and your grace. That's what we will say. That's why Paul over and over says, I boast only in the cross. Why? Because it's all we've got to boast in. Now, one of the biggest tensions expressed in this is, what what about my my kids? You mean my kids can't say a magical prayer that's going to transfer them from the kingdom of darkness and plant them into the kingdom of light? That they're going to go to VBS and and get plucked, you know, and start living right or something? Listen, my kids can't even make healthy eating decisions. I don't want them to have eternal consequences up to them. My kids can't even pick out matching socks. My kids can't decide between Sesame Street and Dora the Explorer. So do I really want them to have their eternal destination and their power? No, I don't. So what does that mean? That means I, Jen and I, we pray for our children every night. And we, we plead with them, over them, over them. I, I, I sing to them, I pray over them, and I say, God, have mercy on my child and save them. And God, have mercy on me, your child, and save my children. Have mercy, God, and save my children. It, it, if the decision was my kids to make, and every night, I shouldn't pray to God. I should plead with Him. Hey, hey Josiah, Abby, pick God. Just pick God. Pick, would you pick God? Would you choose God? Would you pick pick God? Do it now. No, that's not how it works. So every night, I pray, God, have mercy on me. Now, I believe in a, a covenantal relationship. Principally, I believe God honors those who are his children, to save their children. That's not a promise. I think it's a principle. But ultimately, I'm crying out to God to save my kids because he's the only one who can do it. He's the only one. So we pray, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on my family. Have mercy on the nations. Lord, have mercy because he gives it where he wants to give it. So we pray, Lord, give it. Let's pray together. Jesus, I know. Um, this is, this is thick. This is powerful. Uh, Father, I pray that you just help us just to to put it, like I said, the past couple weeks, that we would just let it simmer on our hearts for a while. And that we we would not ignore your word. But we would also test to see what, based on scripture, what is true. And Father, that if there be any emotion in us that is not biblical, that you would open our eyes to that fact. And Father, I just pray for your mercy. I pray that you would pour out your grace and your mercy in such a way that we would see souls saved in this place, in this city, in this nation, in these days. I pray with all the passion that Paul Yearned for his people to be saved at the beginning of Romans 9. I I pray with the same passion that Moses had over his people that they would come to be saved by you. I I pray with the same passion that Jesus looked over Jerusalem with and wept. I I pray that we would have that same passion in, in proclaiming the truth of the gospel to lost souls. But that we ultimately trust. It's in your hands. We can sleep at night knowing that only you can raise the dead, only you can give life to spiritually dead people, only you can give sight to spiritually blind people, only you God. So Lord have mercy on us, Lord have mercy on this city and the churches in this city. Lord, have mercy on our families and our children. Lord, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.